linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'll bet you didn't expect to hear from me again so soon. But after posting my previous podcast, a little synchronicity took place that convinced me to get this talk out to you today. As I mentioned in my last program, the Terrence McKenna talk that I played has uh, been all over the net in various forms. But what I didn't say was that uh, I'd spent a lot of time, fruitlessly I might add, trying to uh, find the rest of that talk. But uh, after wasting more time than I like to think about, I finally decided to uh, add that piece from the Tim Leary archive uh, in order to make it a full program. So I got the podcast finished, uh, but then it took me a day or so to get the program notes posted. So when I did, I, I noticed that about eight hours earlier, the, uh, the following had been posted uh, just ahead of my new program notes. And it said, Hi, Lorenzo. First of all, I want to congratulate you for the great work on the Psychedelic Salon. It's awesome. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> I'm an attentive listener from Portugal. I'm also a great fan of the Bard McKenna. His lectures are absolutely fascinating to me. In relation to that, I recently converted a video to MP3 from his lecture in San Francisco, Dream Awake. You probably heard this before on one of many links in circulation on the net. But the version in circulation of this particular lecture ends on the 34-minute mark. Boy, I found that out. <laughs> and he goes on. And since I've heard this talk, it stimulated my curiosity to find out more about it. And recently, after many hours searching, I found the complete video of the lecture, and in my opinion, it was the most inspiring single talk that I've ever heard of him, discounting the weekend workshops. I've uploaded the MP3 file to RapidShare.com. Feel free to post it on the Psychedelic Salon. It's good to spread hope on this planet. And he uh, then provides the link, which you can find out on our program notes at PsychedelicSalon.org. And uh, he ends by saying, Keep up the good work. Cheers from Portugal. Miguel Fernandez. Now, I'm kind of getting used to these little synchronicities in my life, but this one really caught my attention. After spending so much time looking for this talk and not finding it, only to uh, have it then magically appear in its entirety, well, uh, all I can figure is that uh, good old Terrence McKenna wanted you to hear the rest of his talk. Now, I did cut a few parts out that uh, were either something you've heard him say on uh, several other occasions, uh, and uh, part of it was his discussion of 2012, which has been uh, pretty much updated by the interviews that Jan Urban did uh, in his podcast with uh, John Hopes and uh, John Major Jenkins. Uh, but you can hear the uh, complete talk of uh, Terrence by downloading it from the link that uh, Miguel uh, provided on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog. But I don't think you're going to really miss anything with my edit, uh, at least I hope not. Uh, and now, uh, let's just pick up where we left off in my last podcast with uh, Terrence beginning to talk about psychedelics. Now let's speak for a moment in order to fulfill the promise read by in the introduction uh, about psychedelics and what are they doing in this fine situation. Well, what they're doing is, is forcing this maturation process by dissolving boundaries 
which is what they do, they are exposing the cultural operating system for what it is, which is just a bunch of hacked together rules that evolved over time. They weren't sent from God, from Mount Sinai. Uh, it's just a bunch of hacked together rules. So psychedelics in that sense spread alienation. But what they alienate us from is preposterous, earth-merging, sexist, consumerist, shallow, trivial, inane, insane, and dangerous. And that's what they alienate us from. So again, this neotenizing thing is like the condition of unconsciousness that I described as the precondition for the cosmic giggle. Glamour, acts of magical conjuration, hypnotic delusion and illusion, uh, hysterias, fads, pseudo-revelations, uh, strange truths whispered in every quarter. Uh, this is the character of uh, our time. And people have seemed to believe that they were fulfilling their responsibilities intellectually. People seem to feel they are doing that when they reject the past. Say, well, you know, that was all screwed up, but since I got with Master Shugi, I've understood, you know, the way it really is supposed to be. No, this is just trading one set of, of neotenizing operating systems for another. The, the real hard choice that you're being pushed toward and that you might consider making before the yawning grave rings down uh, the curtain on this cosmic drama is actually intellectual responsibility, freedom, and... Uh, uh, a devotion to uh, what scientists call elegance of thought. You know, people say, well, how can you tell one theory from another and is science better than religion and this and that? Uh, after a lot of arm waving, it should be conceded that the final call is aesthetic. That because we are monkeys, because we are so far from God, we, can, we cannot set knowing the truth as the standard for choosing among the models we can produce. We must set our aesthetic compass towards the more true, what Wittgenstein called the true enough. And then the question is, well, how do you, how do you recognize that? Well, this is a rich field of human study called philosophy of science or theory epistemology and ontology. How, how do we know uh, what is real? But Plato, who all the rest of philosophy is a footnote upon, Plato said, you know, that the key lay in the concepts the good, the true, and the beautiful. The good, what is it? Tricky, tricky, tricky. The true, what is it? Trickier, even trickier. The beautiful, 
What is it? Easy to discern. The beautiful is easy to discern. You are going to be condemned to live out the consequences of your taste. <laughs> really, really. And if you have no taste, you know, God help you. Because you are, you are self-condemned to an appalling nightmare. Uh, you won't be getting it. All the subtle stuff will go by you while, you, while your head is uh, filled with can't, nonsense, foolishness. So again, the, the, the metaphor of, uh, of the dream and of making choices based on beauty, and beauty is, uh, is downloaded into the human cultural milieu largely through dreams. Uh, other ideas may also come in dreams, but I think studies have shown that uh, that architects, designers, people who are actually at the top of the of the pyramid in any design process are very aware of their dreams, their reveries, their insights. So that's that's the way to set the compass, not toward truth, not toward the good, not because these aren't fine things, but because they're so slippery, but toward beauty. And with that in place, uh, to my mind, life, hope follows as a natural consequence. You know, we talk a lot, and I'm sure there are people in this room who are well-versed and connected into the world of virtual reality, which is a very hot topic and may have all kinds of implications for our future and the, and the evolution of consciousness. But it's worth pointing out that uh, we have been making virtual realities for a very, very long time, that language spoken language is the original code for hacking virtual reality and when you sit the children down around the fire and begin to tell the old old stories and the pictures rise out of the flames that is virtual reality and so is and this is the point i want to make so are all the artifacts all the impedimentia of human existence I mean, a, a virtual reality built in aluminum, stucco, steel, and glass is not immediately erased the way you clear a screen, and the cost of making it is great, but Ur was a virtual reality. The Agora at Athens, ancient Rome, Canterbury Cathedral, uh, these are virtual realities. Uh, men and women have toiled at agriculture, at warfare, at child rearing, at many, many activities in the long march towards self-definition. But more and more we have, and this is true even of societies that are aboriginal and without economy, when we free ourselves, we are not freed into a void. When we free ourselves, we are freed into the dimension in which art is an obligation. And 
I, this is the great turning point. I mean, I, I think that the design process, whatever that means, must become conscious, global, integrated. The entire human domain, which means the entire planet and its surrounding near space, should be enclosed and included in a coherent plan driven by human values and a thirst for transformational beauty. And I mention this because I believe that many of the people capable of making major contributions to that are in this room or within a hundred miles of, of this room tonight. And we are people of immense privilege by any way of slicing the planetary demographic even the poorest among us who wheedled their way in here this evening uh, are in the top 1% of the planetary social pyramid on a planet where hundreds of millions of people are starving. The, the obligation upon the conscious people near the control uh, surfaces near the levers of the human machine is immense. So uh, with freedom, and I know this is a cliche, but hopefully not in this context, with freedom of that sort comes enormous responsibility. And it's paradoxical. Responsibility to dream and coexisting and simultaneous with that, an obligation to awaken. In other words, an obligation to make sense, be non-trivial, not to squander resources in foolishness, uh, uh, an obligation to awaken and an obligation to at the same time dream. And then, you know, the rational mind screams out, but this is impossible, this is paradox. But the subtle mind understands that we have now reached square one by openly confronting the necessity for paradox and by openly confronting the fact that we can only enclose our dilemma by speaking in at least two modes at once we begin to actually honor the complexity of the situation. And so tonight, the thought I want to leave with you is the simultaneous project of awakening and the simultaneous project of entering deeper into the dream for, a, for the purpose of cultivating, evoking, experiencing, remembering, transmitting and communicating beauty which feeds back into the awakening process. Otherwise the awakening will be traumatic and demoralizing. We will awaken to a, a, an AIDS ravaged earth, to ecotastrophe, planetary warming, complete uh, collapse of any concern for the destiny of future generations. This awakening must not be disempowering. And the mantle that can be spread over the awakening to 
counteract the possibility of disempowerment is this wish to evoke, realize, and serve the project of bringing ever greater amounts of beauty into the world. We will have an intermission of about 20 minutes, so you can, what do you say, what do you say? And then we will get back together and undergo the more creative process and the more organic part of the evening, which is Q&A. Um, people take, you can be a strict constructionist in the matter of psychedelics, or you can uh, cast your net widely. Uh, there are many substances in nature which alter consciousness, either stimulate or sedate or, or create more ambiguous and spectacular effects. I would describe what Datura, the effects of Datura as a deliriant. Uh, it, it, now, the shamans who use these things have special techniques both of preparation and of training uh, that allow them to control or navigate around the more unpleasant aspects of detura. It tends to provoke memory loss, uh, shall we say bizarre behavior, such as taking your clothes off in public uh, and so on. Uh, and it creates a general ambiance of uncertainty about the nature of reality. And what I mean by that is you talk to people who aren't there, you smoke cigarettes that aren't there, you answer phone calls when you're standing in the woods. Uh, from the outside, it looks pretty fucked up, you know? Uh, but some Aboriginal and native traditions have managed to tame this, at least in the shamanic context. Uh, I, I guess in this matter, I'm a kind of strict constructionist in that when I say psychedelic, I have something very specific in mind that a substance or a plant should do. It should, uh, it should not inhibit clarity. In other words, not episodes of forgetfulness, lack of memory, passing out, or confusion. It, it shouldn't interfere with that, and it should transform thought. And it should be accompanied by visual hallucinations with eyes closed. That's what I love. That's what I live for. Now, people have said to me, uh, you're some kind of a vision chauvinist. It's true, and what they, and usually the people who were saying this were people who were great enthusiasts of LSD. LSD, I would never argue, is not a psychedelic, but you have to take massive amounts, and usually in combination with some other substance like hashish or mescaline, in order to elicit from LSD what I'm after, which is cascades of Niagara's of visual beauty 
in darkness with eyes closed. I have had deep psychological insights on LSD. I have had creative breakthroughs. I have had bonding experiences. Uh, but I have don't, I found it difficult to get the visions like I wanted them. And the best I worked out with LSD was I would smoke as much Afghani hash as I could at the top of the trip, and then it would do the thing, in fact. It, it, it would do it. Uh, the, the thing that led me to psilocybin or to grow mushrooms and explore that was the descriptions of Wasson and the early workers that it was it, it was easy to visually hallucinate and I had read the earlier accounts of Havelock Ellis and people like that and uh, it was about you know if you've ever read in I think it's the Dance of Life Havelock Ellis's description of mescaline he talks about alien buildings, jeweled ruins, fantastically efflorescent rainforests growing and transforming before his eyes. That's what I was after. I wanted not a disturbance in the optic nerve. You know, like on LSD, you get those little things that look sort of like fans that creep across the walls. That's more like something in the visual cortex than than something in the in the mind uh, it seems to me and and i was fascinated and who isn't i mean i never hear this question discussed but to me it was the obvious question about these visions was where do they come from you know how can i be astonished by the contents of my own mind and, and astonished over and over again. Where is this stuff coming from? And I looked at Jung, and I entertained the fantasy of extraterrestrial contact, and uh, I still haven't answered this question. But I think it, it's a question which the critics of the psychedelic experience haven't wanted to deal with. You know, if you read the psychedelic literature, you can tell how, what psilocybin does to heartbeat, sperm count, to perception of tone, on and on. They never talk about the real content, you know, because it's always individual. And they say, well, science can't handle individual phenomena. We measure the properties of large numbers of people. Well, that hopelessly uh, flattens the thing. Um, I know this is a long answer to this question, but, but uh, it's, it's worth laying all this out because the, the lady's question raises issues of how do you categorize psychedelics, which are, which aren't, are some dangerous and to what degree. Certainly Detura is dangerous, not only because it, of its delirium quality, which makes you irresponsible, but also uh, because it dilates your pupils and you can't you stumble around, and at higher doses it can cause uh, convulsion and death, which is a rare thing from what I consider the true psychedelics. There is, if we want to take an excursion here for a moment and learn a little pharmacology, there is, if you're going to talk about pharmacology, there's one concept that you should get straight, and that's called LD50. It means lethal dose. 50. What does this mean? 
Well, you have uh, 20 rats and you give them a certain amount of, let's say, mescaline. When half the rats die, that dose expressed as milligrams per kilogram of body weight is called the LD50. And when pharmacologists assess the danger in a drug, they ask the following question. What is the ratio of the LD50 to the effective dose? And if the LD50 of a drug is only 20 times the effective dose, that's considered an incredibly toxic, dangerous, and, and dubious drug. A good drug is a drug where the LD50 is 200 times more than the effective dose. In the case of LSD, the LD50 for man has never been determined. That's how safe LSD is. And we're talking about lethality here, not, you know. But so it's, it's, and so people say, well, are there unsafe psychedelics? And, and yes, you just look up the LD50s, line them up, and see which has the which have the better ratios. By that measurement, by that standard, LSD is the most desirable. But there's, the LD50 of psilocybin is very impressive. You know, you can take a hundred times the effective dose of psilocybin and, effect, and expect to live. Mescaline, not. Mescaline has a bad profile. Uh, as an amphetamine, if you took 20 times the effective dose of mescaline, you would probably die. Of course, an effective dose of mescaline is nearly a gram of pure material, 700 milligrams. Uh, if you took 20 times 700 milligrams, you would be taking almost a complete, you know, nearly two-thirds of an ounce of mescaline. And why should you survive? <laughs> After all, stupidity does have consequences. Uh, but really, uh, people always ask the question, are psychedelics dangerous? The, you know, and they mean physically dangerous. What should be said, and it's recently been pointed out to me that I don't say it very often, is that the biggest danger with psychedelics is that while you are in that open state, some moron will mess with you and and either lay a suggestion or plant an idea or manipulate you or scare you or turn you in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily go and this is why psychedelic etiquette means knowing your tripping partners uh, people who take psychedelics with strangers at high dose do come back with wild tales to tell, but uh, I don't think you can do that over and over again without having some horrible thing befall you. My mind is not, I mean, some people s seem more resilient. I am not. You know, people often ask me to trip them. 
and and I won't, and it's not because of concern for the legal system or the fact that I am not licensed for psychotherapy or any of that. It's because I can't stand it when people come apart on psychedelics. I, I am, you know, if you're interested in this subject or if you share my sensitivity, read uh, Carl Jung's little book called On the Psychology of the Transference. And then you will understand. In fact, that should be a standard tome for trippers. Understand the transference. Understand what it is, how to fight it. And uh, you, you, this is psychic martial arts. Uh, your, your, your psychic health will be immeasurably improved by understanding the dynamics of the transference, which is quite simple. The book is not that... Uh, that thick. Uh, now to answer the lady's question. Uh, when I took Detura, I had reality distorting strange. And if I had been a personality of a different sort, I might have followed it deeper, but appeared to me to be ambiguous and evil. Not evil, maybe evil. Uh, what happened to me was this was in Nepal years and years ago. Nepali shamanism is based in part on Datura, the taking of the seed capsules. Uh, an English friend of mine who had the room next to mine took it, and I took it in my room. And it was a situation where to get to the facilities, I had to walk through his room. And he and I were friends, but we had a very slight rivalry going uh, for the attention of a woman. And, and I think this woman was not aware that either of us was interested in her, but we were both aware that the other one was aware. And uh, midway through my trip, I decided I had to go to the bathroom. And so I stepped through into this guy's room and they were in bed together uh, uh, having sex. And I, I guess I went outside and then I, the next morning, after sleeping many hours, I, I encountered the guy and I said, how, how was your trip? And he said, uh, it was wonderful. And I said, yes. Well, uh, I saw, and he said, what did you see? And I said, well, I, I saw that you were with Julietta. And he said, uh, I thought so too. <laughs> but she wasn't there. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, what, what conclusion do we draw from this? That this stuff is, well, I'll tell you what took me off it finally was about a week later, there seemed to be a rash of this detour taking moving through the traveler community there in this little Nepali village where I lived. And about a week later, I was buying tomatoes in the market and I encountered a different person, but this English friend of mine. And, uh, he told me he'd been taking a lot of Datura, and I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I took it. I don't think I'll be taking it again. And as the conversation developed, I realized he thought we were in his apartment. 
and uh, we were not we were in the market and you know this tells you it's time to dry out Anyway, I use that as a springboard to, to different subjects. You were very patient. Uh, next question. <laughs> I hope I can remember what my question is. <laughs> yes. I, I agree that uh, there's something sort of mysterious about where these psychedelic effects come from, and I refer again to the sort of classic psychedelic psilocybin LSD. But the fact that you generally need to take a substance or a drug, it's a material thing, does in some sense sort of go in a strange way to reinforcing a pretty basic scientific, almost mechanistic view of the universe. And I just wondered if you had thought about that or or have any comments? Well, let me try to convince you otherwise. (laughs) I mean, I see what you're saying. You're saying that because this Uh, transformative possibly spiritual experience is causally connected to the act of taking a matter of a certain type into your body that it seems to argue for the uh, materialist proposition that mind is an epiphenomenon of the functioning of brain and so forth. Am I restating it right? Well, yes, sort of, but those are, in some sense, far more real than, say, uh, channeling, uh, what did you say, archive? Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, yes, I mean, this relates to what I was saying about the balkanization of epistemology. It's really strange to me that science is in the act of flinging open the curtains on a staggering vision of what it is to be alive in this cosmos. I mean, we now can look back through the Hubble and other telescopes, you know, 13 billion years to within 600 million years of the primary explosion that presumptively created this universe. Meanwhile, we're tearing open the the nature of the human genome, the nature of the heart of the atom. Uh, This is the great, great age for the expansion of of the scientific vision. But the population is somehow incapable of staying up with what's going on. And so we have the greatest proliferation of occultism in all forms since the 16th century. It's almost as though there's a bifurcation of the culture. The, the scientific, the makers of new science are going deeper and deeper in the direction that the rest of the public not only cannot follow them into, but is actually headed the other way. And uh, it's, a, it's a condemnation of our educational system that people have not understood that science, for all its flaws, is the only tool for understanding the nature of reality that has any kind of track record whatsoever. The others just have a story to tell. 
you know, the Buddha story, the Jesus story, fine stories, but that's all they have is a rap. Uh, the, the amazing, you see, why is science different? Somebody could just say, well, but isn't it just a rap? Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it is, but it plays by slightly different rules than these other explanatory systems. Science is the only explanatory system where you get points for proving you're wrong. You know? I mean, you form a hypothesis, you publish a paper, then you do further experiments, you discover your conclusions in paper A were completely wrong, you retract paper A and issue paper B, and your fellow scientists say, this guy does very good work, these are careful thinkers, you can bank on these people, they're not flaky. What religion operates like that? Uh, you know, can you imagine coming out of the ashram and saying, having the guru say to his students, well, we managed to reduce that hypothesis to rubble in morning meditation, didn't we? So, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, I, and then let me return to answer that question based on my original misunderstanding of it. <laughs> and I would say this, you cannot, it is no reduction of the psychedelic experience to say that it is caused by drugs because they are material atomic systems and therefore we know all about them. Every electron is the yawning mouth of a wormhole that leads to quadrillions of higher dimensional universes that are completely beyond rational apprehension. Matter is not lacking in magic. Matter is magic. I mean, so when you hear these people like David Dennett and all these talk show materialists running around, these people haven't gotten the news that's coming out of quantum physics. I mean, you see, there's a, there's a, pr a problem, or let me describe to you the state of play here. <laughs> the way science works is, is science uh, respects a fidelity of theory to experimental results. What really thrills a scientist is when you have a theory that makes a prediction down to five or six decimal points, and then you perform an experiment, and it's spot on down to five or six decimal points, and then everybody involved in what's going on has extremely high confidence that they're on the right track. Well, now, only one science is ever that good. Physics, macrophysics, uh, by uh, chemistry, it's good, but it's not that good. Uh, ecology, biology, demography, these are pretty loose. They play with numbers, but it's to high, it's a fig leaf. And by the time you get to <laughs> sociology or something like that, I mean, these clowns have just snuck under the tent and should actually be shown the door uh, and, and put back outside with the card readers. So, 
so for several hundred years, uh, you know, to, since let's say Galileo and serious physics, this is how it, science has been. It's been a pyramid of envy directed toward the paradigmatic science, which was physics, and which could produce this incredible congruence of theory and, uh, and experimental data. Well, so then physics, of course, charges forward deeper into matter, asking deeper questions. Well, once you pass below the level of the electron, it's, it's like suddenly, it's like smoking DMT or something. Absolute madness breaks out where before you had these wonderful theories and they were feeding back this data. Now suddenly you have backward flowing time. You have particles which ton, which appear magically on one side of an energy barrier without apparently crossing through it. Uh, you have non-locality, which seems to imply that every particle that exists is somehow magically connected with every other particle. We now have quantum teleportation, we have black holes, we have singularities. And don't be fooled, folks, what is a singularity? It's just a place where you agree that the rules are canceled because you don't know what the hell else to do. And it, it's fine, you know. It used to be in physics that they had one singularity. It was called the Big Bang. And so you say, well, one singularity, essentially what science is saying is give us one free miracle and then we can, we can run it from there. But... Uh, the, the theory of special relativity then introduced the concept of black holes. And of course, uh, black holes are enormous gravitational masses, so massive that neither light nor information can leave them. And what do black holes have at the center of them? Well, a singularity. Well, how many black holes are there in the universe? 10 high 14, that's a lot of singularities if you're trying to produce a theory without singularities. I mean, essentially, that's an admission of total intellectual defeat. My God, if there are 10 high 14 singularities, you're not even doing science. You just might as well be, you know, channeling uh, Atlantis or something. <laughs> so... Um, it, it, it troubles me because I think this stuff is rich, uh, that physics is feeding back and that ultimately a model of consciousness will come out of studying the, the deeper levels of the behavior of matter. But the conclusions are all going to support the non-scientific, non-rational factions. In other words, Bell non-locality is real. All matter in the universe is in contact with all other matter through some kind of higher space based on their original connectivity. Quantum teleportation is a possibility. Uh, these violations, backward flowing time and violations of, of rational casuistry are all real. In other words, science, meaning physics at this point, prosecuted its agenda of deconstructing nature 
to the point where it let loose the elves of madness, paradox, contradiction, and peculiarity. And that can now never be put back. I mean, the dirty little secret is that at bedrock, the universe is more like a DMT flash than it is like an 18th century garden party, as we were previously assured by the practitioners of science. Uh, so I think that's enough ranting on that subject. <laughs> Thanks for being patient. <laughs> so it seems crazy to me to have, you know, violent factions for 2012. And then the, I mean, the point is that something, the galactic mind, the, the, the intelligence of the species, the integrated Gaian and galactic entelechy, something is trying to deliver a message. And it is writ large, this message, in our largest systems of defining and understanding time. Uh, we are at the end of a cosmic cycle. You can say a thousand years if you're a Gregorianist, or you can say a 5,300x year cycle if you're a Mayanist, or you can say a 26,000 year cycle if you're a Processionist. But the point is, we are, we are there. We are there we are in parking orbit around the eschaton uh, and you know it permeates our lives all you have to do is sit down smoke a bomber and look and it's there you know it, it is pregnant we are pregnant with this eschatological breakthrough and, you know, people wanted to arrive in the form of ships the size of Manitoba hovering over the Oval Office, uh, <laughs> perhaps offering oral sex, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and, but you see, we are, we are such ephemeral creatures in time, we're like mayflies or something, mayflies who only live for seven days. Uh, in other words, our temporal window perception is so extreme. I mean, people say, well, nothing much ever seems to happen. Well, a hundred years ago, there were no movies, automobiles, airplanes, telephones, internet, atom bombs, antibiotics, DNA, it's endless. So in the space of, and yet people say, well, nothing much ever seems to happen. You know, An incredible ability to not register radical change seems to be a precondition of existing in the presence of uh, radical change. Uh, the second thing which science has taken on board, uh, has refused to take on board, is that this process of complexification that I just described to you, as you approach the place in time called the present, happens faster and faster. That was not necessarily implied by the first observation. The first observation was simply that there was a process which was moving from simple to complex. Now we have the concept of a process which is ever accelerating as it moves from the simple to the complex. So uh, more and more happens as you approach the present. 
And since these processes have been running since the Big Bang, there is no argument to be entertained that they will reverse themselves suddenly. No, they're not going to reverse themselves after 13 billion years. Duh. <laughs> so, uh, so then, but the implication of that carried to its ultimate extreme leads to a conclusion most people find too wild to entertain. If the universe is evolving deeper and deeper into complexity, faster and faster, and if now in a human lifetime we can see a small portion of this curve, it no longer appears flat to us because of our nearness in relation, you understand what I'm saying? That we can actually discern the curve. And so that means, I believe, that by extrapolating this process, we should then logically conclude that we are very near, relative to the life of the universe, we are very near to the place where this ramping up of complexity will become so excruciatingly rapid that more change will happen in a single week than happened in the previous 13 billion years. And that then there will come a moment where more will happen in a single minute than happened in the previous 13 billion. And then a moment will come when more will happen in, in 6.55 times 10 to the uh, 23rd uh, erg seconds. More will happen than has happened. And people say, well, but that's crazy. I mean, how, what kind of universe is that? That ramp, that... <laughs> well, wait a minute. What's so crazy about this? Let's look at what the competition is peddling. <laughs> what the competition would have you believe is that the universe sprang from nothing in a single moment for no reason. Well, now, whatever you think about that theory, in the interest of being awake, please notice that that is the limit case for credulity. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean that if you can believe that, you can believe anything. That is the most improbable proposition the human mind can conceive of. I challenge you to top it. You know, I mean, I know the Scientologists think God is a clam on another planet, but I don't think that tops this idea. <laughs> that the universe sprang from nothing in a single moment for no reason. That is the art, that's article of faith number one. I say, no, no, this, this, if we're talking about universes that spring from nothing, if we're, if we're going to talk like that, then surely such universes occur in a situation of great complexity. In other words, if we're going to look for an enormous eruption of emergent phenomena, an enormous, sudden, unexpected download of novelty, we shouldn't look in a domain of zero space, zero time, 
zero energy, zero anti-entropic organization, that's the worst place to look. That's the least likely place where such a singularity would be, would spring out. Where should you look if you believe in this jabberwock, this chimera, this particular beast? Where should you hunt this snark? You should hunt it in domains of immense complexity where you have matter, energy, light, chemistry, language, machines, people, cultures, intentionality, minds, minds, minds. And if you throw all that stuff together and shake it up, it's maybe not a sure thing that you will get a singularity, but you're certainly betting right. You're now you've figured it out. So I, I think that uh, science is, is extremely hostile to the idea that the universe is complexifying and complexifying more and more rapidly. Why? It's just a matter, it's just a historical issue. It has to do with the fact that 19th century English biology was extremely hostile to what it called deism. Deism was the reigning religious paradigm of the 19th century, and it's the idea that God is a clockmaker, and that God made the universe and wound it up like a clock and went away. And it, what <coughs> irked those, what irked Darwin and Lyle and those people was the idea that the universe has a purpose. You see, they thought that if it has a purpose, this somehow means there is a God. And they weren't up for that. Uh, they were trying to build rational science into a tool for understanding nature. I think we have grown beyond that. And that's a, it's foolish to wear those tight 19th century high-button shoes. We can believe that the universe is following an organizational vector. We can believe that the universe is under the influence of a strange attractor. We can believe that the universe is pulled toward a future uh, denouement, as well as pushed by the unfolding of causal necessity. We can believe all of that without evoking the 19th century concept of God. Now, why do I spend so much time on this? And you know, what, what's so great about all this? Here's what's so great about all this. If you, if you will join me in this belief that the universe works as I have described, it's an engine for the generation of complexity, and it preserves complexity, <clears throat> and it builds on complexity to ever higher levels. If you entertain this, guess what happens? It's like a light comes on on the human condition. Who are we in my story? Well, first let me tell you who are we in science's story. We are nobody. We are lucky to be here. We are a cosmic accident. We exist on an ordinary star. <coughs> at the edge of, an, of a typical galaxy in an ordinary part of space and time. And essentially, our existence is without meaning, or you have to perform one of those existential pate dues where you confer meaning, or you know, one of these postmodern uh, soft shoes. <laughs> but if I'm right, 
that the universe has an appetite for novelty, then we are the apple of its eye. Suddenly, cosmic purpose is restored to us. We left the center of the cosmic stage in the 13th century and haven't been back since. But this idea says, no, people matter. You are the cutting edge of a 13 billion year old process of defining novelty. Your acts matter. Your thoughts matter. Your, your purpose to add to the complexity. Your enemy, disorder, entropy, stupidity, and tastelessness. Uh, and, and so suddenly then, you know, you have a morality, you have an ethical arrow, you have contextualization in the processes of nature, you have meaning, you have authenticity, you have hope, you have the cancellation of existentialism and positivism and all that late 20th century crapola that people used to uh, entertain back in the old days. So uh, that's why I uh, am so keen for the idea of novelty because it seems self-evident. Uh, and, you know, we can argue about whether the eschaton will arrive uh, in 2000 or 2012 or 3000. But I cannot believe that there is anybody in this room tonight who can, that the hardest thing to imagine is human history going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more years. That's impossible. We, have, we see around us the processes that make of history a self-limited game. The clock's ticking, folks. You think we can do gene splicing and internet and psychedelic <coughs> drugs and manipulation of our genetic material and star flight and atom uh, uh, antimatter and uh, uh, quantum teleportation and all these things? You can extrapolate that 500 years into the future? Don't be ridiculous. No, history is some kind of a phase transition. It only lasts about 25,000 years. Some people think that's a long time. Some people think it's a short time. It depends on where you stand. I think of it as snap. You know, one moment you're hunting uh, ungulates on the plains of Africa, and the next moment you're hurling a gold deuterium superconducting extra stellar device toward Alpha Centauri with all of mankind aboard in virtual space being run as a simulation in circuitry. <laughs> you know? It's just first the one thing, then the other thing. Uh, but now history, which lasts 25,000 years, is this weird period where you're neither fish nor fowl. You know, you're not the hunting ape anymore, but you are not yet the 16-dimensional digital god, you know. And, and in that transition phase, there is confusion, there is uh, angst. But now we're at the end. We have no, I, I maintain anybody who's peddling angst and peddling pessimism and peddling all this stuff is just that's so two minutes ago. <laughs>
question. <laughs> I, I heard you on the radio uh, being interviewed a while back talking about uh, it's DMT, is that the? That is. <laughs> and um, that got me really interested. And uh, you, you, you said that it was basically unavailable. From me. <laughs> well, is that your question? No. Close, close. Pardon me? No, I, I was really wondering, um, yeah, I, I had interpreted that you had said it was pretty much unavailable, period, and I was wondering if, if in fact, it was available, and um, if not, I mean, that just sort of renewed my interest in psychedelics, um, which now you think is the second best choice? Well, first let me say, because it's an... And I'd like to hear maybe just a little more about... Um, about DMT. Oh, okay. Well, first thing let me say, which is a piece of practical advice, um, the psychedelic community is is cleverly invisible because our choices in gender expression, fashion, so forth and so on, have by crypto osmosis come to dominate the values of the culture, we can no longer tell ourselves from from straight people. <laughs> so uh, the only opportunity where we really come out of the woodwork is a thing like this. And, but then, of course, there's a tendency to fall into old think and everybody focus on the alpha male spielmeister at the front of the room. Uh, so let me point out to you, I'm leaving, I'm going home to Hawaii tomorrow morning, but this is your community. This is your community. And whatever it is that you think you need, there are a dozen people in this room who can help you out. <laughs> and I am not one of them. Because I have a different assignment. But look around. And, and of course, be careful. Uh, but after all, this is about consciousness, right? I mean, if you're not conscious enough to... Uh, uh, conduct that social transaction without flubbing it up, that's probably God's way of telling you you shouldn't be proceeding toward high doses anyway. Um, yeah. Oh, and you wanted me to say more about it. The black and red poncho. <laughs> the man in the black and red poncho. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's impossible to talk about DMT, but on the other hand, it's fun to try to talk about it because it pushes it pushes the horse of language into a lather. Basically, when you smoke DMT, what happens is pure confoundment. And, you know, I'm trying to speak generally here in the sense that different people are confounded by different things. 
So of course it addresses you personally. Your your level and tolerance for confoundment is a very uh, personal thing. Uh, people have asked me about DMT. Is it dangerous? And the real answer is only if you fear death by astonishment. <laughs> you know, and you deliver that line, and then people laugh. Except the people who've done DMT don't laugh. <laughs> Because they understand, you know, death by astonishment is no remote possibility. Uh, death by astonishment is right there. You know, when was the last time you were astonished? It's, unless I smoke DMT, it doesn't happen to me. Amazed occasionally. Astonished? Never. Astonishment is when your jaw hangs for a long time, you know, and DMT is simply confounding. Now, how could something be that confounding? I mean, you can imagine taking a drug and realizing that you should treat your partner better or realizing that God really exists or realizing that you should exercise more or realizing that the planet is an organized intelligence. but. But how could something be as confounding as DMT is? Uh, well, I think the answer to that, and it took me a while to get to this, is that the reason it's so confounding is because it, its, its impact is on the, the language-forming capacity itself. So the reason it's so confounding is because the thing which is trying to look at the DMT is, is infected by it, it, by, it, by the process of inspection. So DMT does not provide an experience which you analyze. Nothing so tidy goes on. The, the, the syntactical machinery of description undergoes some kind of hyperdimensional inflation instantly and and then you know you 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 cannot tell yourself what it is that you understand in other words what dmt does can't be downloaded into as low dimensional a language as english and so you you like I remember a B movie I saw when I was a kid and it was set somewhere in Mexico and there was a big swamp and there was a dinosaur in the swamp and at one point this uh, this campesino comes who encounters the dinosaur comes rushing out of the swamp and the patron of the ranch is there and this terrified guy is there in the serape and he can only point to the forest and sort of make a croaking sound and, uh, and, and, and that's what English allows you to do uh, with the experience of DMT. You just come down a sputtering mess if it, if it works. You just come down saying, you know, my God, you know, it's not what I thought it was. And this is after you've done it 20 times. It's not what I thought it was. It's not what I can think it is. It, 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 it's something, and I, to me, it's a miracle because my intellectual arrow and how I brought myself up in terms of all these things was I am a rationalist.
and I am interesting, interested in testing and verifying and proceeding to define truth by non-exotic means. In other words, no archangels, no none of that. Uh, and and as I as I matured intellectually, I began to eliminate mystery from the world. You know, I'd look into some spiritual discipline, conclude, no, that's a bunch of crap. I'd go to some teacher, conclude, no, this guy is a weasel. I I tested, I, I sought the weird, but with an attitude of critical skepticism. And I assumed blithely that with this flashlight, I would soon prove there were no elves in, out there in the darkness. Turns out, no, no. This is the way to proceed. Because stuff which is malarkey will be exposed as malarkey instantly. You know, you just go to the guru and say, what can I, what can you show me? And if the guy wants you to sweep up around the ashram for a dozen years or so, you say, no, I'm out of here. Uh, but when you get to DMT, it delivers. It delivers. It is as strange as anything can be. It is, you know, it is not only stranger than you suppose as you sit here, it is stranger than you can suppose. And what makes me wild about this is we're not talking about something that you have to go 500 miles up a jungle river and live with primitive people and study techniques for 30 years. And control. We're talking about something which if I had a pipe loaded with it in my hand, each one of you would be 30 seconds away from what I'm talking about. Well, you know, you've tripped and yeah, you lived in Paris and you went to Trebizond and all these things, but nothing like this ever descended. But it's not, it's not, it, it's so near. You know, it's not attained by practicing tantric techniques or building up, mon it's none of that. It's just near, very near. One toke away is this absolutely reality-dissolving, category-reconstructing, mind-boggling possibility. And I feel like this is a truth that has to be told. I'm like the campesino running out of the swamp and saying, you know, over here, you know, the orange thing. <clears throat> Do that. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And since it's Christmas Eve, uh, I'm not going to ramble on here at the end of this podcast like I normally do. Instead, uh, 
I'll just repeat something that uh, Terence said a few minutes ago, and I think this would be well worth remembering in the year to come. And I quote: "But if I'm right that the universe has an appetite for novelty, then we are the apple of its eye. You are the cutting edge of a 13 billion year old process of defining novelty. Your acts matter. Your thoughts." Matter. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.